Can you hear me? Am I muted? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you see the screen? What do you see on the screen? Journey, Journey of Adolescence. 
Okay, cool. No problem.
Rabbi? You're muted. Have a question. Rabbi, you're on mute. Yes, and now I'm on muted. A question. Well, two questions, actually. Um, you know how when somebody, the, your type comes up, you say you, you wish that the neshama should have, have an aliyah, right? Yes. Okay. But you said that the neshama stays with the body. There's three parts of the neshama, if you recall. The oh. nefesh stays with the body, but the ruach and neshama goes up in heaven. So the nefesh stays with the body. Correct. The part of the body that stays down here in the grave site is the nefesh. Okay. That's why the moment the person passes away, the body doesn't just wither away. Okay. Okay. Because I thought that it was the ruach that went up and there was the one... The ruach does go up and the neshama is... So there's five levels of the neshama, just in short. The nefesh is the most physical one. So that's when you see the actual body. That's the nefesh. Ruach is the, so to speak, oxygen, and that's the spirit that leaves when the person passes. And then the word neshama is technically the hybrid between the physical and the spiritual, even while we're alive, that connects us with above. So for the two physical parts that are, uh, that have to do with the physical, uh, so to speak, uh, biology of the person is the nefesh and the ruach. Okay, and what's the other two levels? Neshama is the third okay. level. And yeah. the highest two levels are only spiritual, Chaya and Yechida. Okay. So Yechida is the highest level. And in the level of Yechida, we're all one. That's why it comes to Yechida, singular term. Okay. There are no differences. Okay. In the level of Yechida, every Jew is connected at the core. And what about the Chaya? Sorry? What about the other level, the one below? Chaya is uh, another level of, uh, of spirituality. And in spirituality, there are many different levels, but uh, it's a whole separate uh, idea for itself. What level corresponds to what level of Hashem's name? It's a whole Kabbalistic in nature. Okay. Now, I have the other, another question. I have a friend who, she, when her husband, before her husband passed away, he was very sick, he wanted to be cremated. She did that. She didn't think there was anything wrong with it. She was not knowledgeable of Judaism. Uh, and she said that when she dies, she wants to be cremated. I tried to explain to her nicely. How do you explain it to somebody without making them feel guilty? Well, when she, what she did to her husband, she didn't know. But now that she knows that she shouldn't be doing it, um, and as we discussed last week, there's the different levels of understanding when a person realizes the severity of what cremation means in Judaism, then they'll reconsider it, hopefully. Okay. So what's but the big thing? It is, sorry? She, she thinks that because she had her husband cremated, and she did it, even though she knows now that she does it, shouldn't have done it, I guess. She, it, it's like, I think she feels guilty that, well, I, I had him do it, so I have to do it too. So, so I think you can explain to her that now that he's up there in the true world, he sees what the right thing to do is, and there's no reason, and he'll be happier if she doesn't do it. Okay. As I said, it's a very tough conversation. It's a very tough thing to sell so to speak because again you're talking about spirituality there's no way you can prove it 
Um, I can tell you that many times that I had to challenge people on this. If they said it was wishes, then there was nothing you can do about it. Um, but I was successful a few times. And you really have to talk to the people and see if it's a psychological, if it's an emotional, intellectual, philosophical, what avenue are they coming you from? And that's the way you really have to tackle it. Well, he actually came from a very religious background. He went to Yeshiva and everything. So you would have thought that he would have. Yeah, but him. unfortunately, as we mentioned, the trends influence people. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank We're going to get started. Okay, we're about to start lesson three. Make yourself comfortable, get your soup, your coffee, wherever you are. I see there's somebody coming in. There's a door unlocked there. Looks like somebody, yeah, okay. We are today going to continue Journey of the Soul. Welcome to Journey of the Soul, lesson number three. As you make yourselves comfortable, enjoy the soup. Oh, to the soup. The jour, today's soup is uh, potato leek. Okay. Empire. Okay. Welcome everybody again for today's class, lesson number three, Journey of the Soul. Start off today, there's a story told about the stuntman who was once uh, stretched out a tightrope above the Niagara River, Niagara Falls, I'm sorry. And as the crowd gathered below, everybody was watching the fellow put on the toe, uh, go on the tightrope across the Niagara Falls. And they're all excited to see him make it across and the cheering him from down below. And he makes it across. He gets the chairs. Everybody says, wonderful. And he says, you think that was great? I can do it blindfolded. They said, wow, that's amazing. So he puts on the blindfold and he walks across the tightrope across to the other side of the Niagara Falls. And again, Everybody cheers him on. He says, not only can I do a blindfold, but this time I'm going to do it with a wheelbarrow in front of me across the Niagara Falls. And everybody says, that's amazing. And again, the cheers below are getting stronger and louder and more excited. Now he says, I'm going to blindfold with a wheelbarrow and somebody inside. And everybody cheers. Wow, look what he's going to do. But he says, okay, who wants to volunteer to go inside? All of a sudden, the place becomes silent. What happened? What happened? What happened to the believers all of a sudden? Nobody wants to go inside. Because in theory, as long as somebody else is doing it, it's all wonderful. It's all great. And this is where we come to the disparity between theory and practice. And this week, we're going to go into... <clears throat> talk about practice, meaning in the previous lessons we discussed the death and soul's transition into the other world. We spoke about it from a theological perspective, from a theoretical perspective, from a philosophical perspective, from a spiritual perspective, and in all of these per perspectives, 
we were somewhat, so to speak, detached from the reality and the pragmatics of what it really means. And as somebody will tell you if they've lost a loved one, when a person, then the practical reality is of death is that it leaves a gaping hole in the hearts and in the deceased, in the, in the loved ones of the deceased. And in the process, it may open up new wounds. And in the process, it may cause people to feel differently because of it. And what we're going to do today to endeavor to discuss this and with the information that we learned today, though it may be a little bit touchy, I should say, or a little bit sensitive, but ultimately allow us to better cope with the pain and the aches in the heart of so many may feel. So what we're going to do today is start with two different experiences, two people who experienced the loss in their life and very different experiences to that loss. Text number one on page 84. A story about a woman by the name of Heather Lindquist was in her kitchen cleaning up after lunch when she heard a dull thud. It sounded as if it had come from the hallway and it was just a little too loud to ignore. Boys, she yelled. What are you up to? There was no answer. She found her two boys playing quietly on the couch in the living room. They giggled. You joker, she said with a smile. What was that sound? They shrugged. Where's your father? Without waiting for an answer, she ran towards the hallway. She cried out in fear that she found her husband, John, writhing on the floor. John had severe asthma. He was taking a new medication and it seemed to be working, but suddenly it collapsed in the worst attack he'd ever had. Heather tried everything she could to save her husband's life. Then she called an ambulance. The rest was a blur. John died of cardiac arrest on the way to the hospital. Heather was, 40, was 34 years old. Her boys were five and seven. At that moment, John's death felt like the worst thing that she can ever happen to her. Heather Linquist had lived her entire life in the same quiet suburban community in northern New Jersey. She, had, she and John had been high school sweethearts. They married and purchased a small ranch-style house. They had children. They got a dog. The schools were good and the community was stable. Heather thought that the television was on more than it should be. But other than that, everything seemed in order. Then John died, and she had to rethink it all. Now she was a single parent. She had to find new ways to earn money and also find extra time to be with her boys. And somehow she had to contain everyone's anguish. She found strength and didn't know how. We lost you, Rabbi. Marin, do you even see his picture now? Uh, I don't know. You're talking, so I can't tell. I did, no, he was, no uh, his picture's not there. Okay, I'm going to call him. Deborah, Liz is calling the rabbi. I don't remember where you were, but we stopped hearing you and your picture is gone. He had to rethink everything. 
It says Mendy is now your host, but I don't see you. Oh, now I see you, but you're muted. You need not a problem. There we go. Okay. Sorry about that, everybody. That's uh, part of the uh, details of dealing with the Zoom, but we're back on and glad to see everybody hung in there. Okay, we're now, we've read about text, or just to recap where we are, we've read text number one on page 84 about Stephanie, I'm sorry, about Heather Lindquist, who was able to have resilience in the face of her loss. We're now going to read about a second woman by the name of Stephanie Molberg of Shortles, New Jersey, who became overwhelmed by her grief. And here is text number two on page 86. Stephanie Moldberg of Shortles, New Jersey, lost her son Eric, 13, to an Ewing sarcoma, a bone cancer, found four years after Eric's death. Miss Moldberg, now 48, walked around like a zombie. I felt guilty all the time, guilty about living, she said. I couldn't walk into the deli because Eric wouldn't go, couldn't go there any longer. I couldn't play golf because Eric couldn't play golf. My life was a mess. And I couldn't talk to my friends about it because after a while, they didn't want to hear about it. Stephanie, you need to get your life back, they said. But how could I? On birthdays, I shut the door and take the phone off the hook. Eric could have, could have, couldn't have any more birthdays. Why should I? So over here, we have two people. We have... We lost them again. I'm sorry. Something wrong with the internet. Did we lose them? No, we're still here. Are you still there? Okay, I'm sorry. No problem. My, my computer. Hold on. There we go. Okay. I'm sorry. We have over here two people. Is it showing up? There we go. Two people who it's behave people. differently. Rabbi, the slide is not showing on the Zoom. Just one second. For some reason, I'm losing my mouse here. Hold on. Is Shmuel there tonight? No, Shmuel's not here tonight, but <laughs> we'll get through it. Don't worry. Hold on. I'm sure. Here, I got back my mouse. That's all. We just lost my mouse. Just give me a second. We'll get be right back on. Okay, so what we have over here, our question is, why do people react so differently? Do you see it now, everybody there? No. Oops, I still don't see it. I see you. Hold on, let me just get the zoom back up here. Here we go. Share screen. We'd love you back here. Anyway, I got it. I got it. I got it. I'm not that bad. Yeah, where Shmuel had a uh, don't test today. So. Uh, okay. Okay, we here we go. Everybody up and good now? Yeah. Okay, let's just make sure. Okay, our back to our question is, why is it that we have Heather and Stephanie and why do people react so differently? No two people are alike. No two people's circumstances are the same. But the question is, why is it that we find that some people are resilient and can just move on with life and some people get stuck in the mud? Now, of course, we can give many different excuses and say, you know what, Heather, had her children that she had to live for, so therefore she had to be strong. And, and Stephanie maybe didn't have the child. Heather was a husband, this was a child. There was all different reasons what we can give and no two circumstances are the same. And people, two
can't hear you again. Ladies, can anybody else hear him? He froze. Uh-oh. Okay. I will call him again. Hang on. No, I don't hear anything. Okay. I don't know. I see your screen that you're sharing, but we can't hear you. Tell him he froze. I can hear you on the phone. It says Deborah Hockman is now the host. I hear you on the phone. I don't even see your name on the screen. Okay. Oh, now I see you. No, you're muted. I hear you on the phone, but you're muted. Okay. He's also not the host. Is he still not the host? Okay. You're still muted, though. Now, do you hear me? Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't know what's going on, why it keeps on cranking out like that, but we'll try again. Um, okay. Rabbi, we can't see the screen. I hung up on you. I hear music. Is that me? Oh, I'm just wondering. Okay, hold on one second. Here we go. Okay. It just the internet here for some reason, I don't know, kept on ruining it. Okay. Okay. Let's go. Now you should see the screen and now you should hear me. Um, I see Toshiba. Let's see one second. Stop share. Your screen, Bendy. Maybe you didn't pay the seventy-five dollars. <laughs> ah, that's what I think it is. <laughs> let's see. Okay, let's. They shared their own screen. How's that now? It says Mendy Girl Goldberg has started screen up. Oh, now I got it. Okay, we are now. Yes, thank you. Okay, if there's any problems, let me know. I will. Thank okay, you. let's hope that we'll get it straight for the rest of the class. So we're back to what we're talking about over here is why is it that people react differently to different things even when their screen fails and the Zoom goes out? But in everything in life, people react differently even if, they are, even if the circumstances are exactly the same. You know two people are act the same way. That's just the bottom line. It's reality of life. We all have different emotions, different feelings, different things we get excited about, different ways we approach things in life. But even if our circumstances were the same, you can have two people walk out of, let's say, even take the greatest tragedy of life. You have two people that walked out of the Holocaust in the same exact concentration camp. One person embraced God even more, and one person said, forget about God. Why? Because this was just the way us as people have different ways how we react to things in life. 
And therefore, before we even start discussing a better way to mourn or to cope with tragedy, we have to put out out there and say one thing is clear, that we cannot judge any person for the way they deal with the tragedies in their life. And therefore, the loss of a loved one doesn't equal a certain experience. The loss, any tragedy that besieges a person in life doesn't mean that I have to behave A, B, and C. And we all have our different ways of how we react to it. That being said, we, we should look for ways. A person should not become paralyzed because of the grief. And what we want to talk about today is how do we reemerge into normal life? How do we acclimate and get better and move on with our life, so to speak, after the pain and the suffering that comes into a person? And what we're going to try to do today is take the, how the Torah guides us through the difficult times in life, the death of a loved one, and many of the ideas that we're going to study today we already discussed in the past two weeks. And the only difference is that today we're going to apply it in the pragmatic, meaning until now we discussed how this applies to the soul and the spiritual component of the, of the person. Today we're going to talk about how this affects the bereaved mourners, the family of the deceased, how they react to the person who passed on. Because we know where the deceased is, he passes on and go, he or she moves on to a greater place in life and a transition from one world to the next. But how do we, the people of this world, the loved ones and the mourners, so to speak, how do they move on and how do they take and react to it? So what we're going to look at today is we can talk about three parts and this is our little overview for today's class. Number one, we're going to look at the Torah's view of mourning and grief. We will look how one, by, how one should act following a loss and how one can be comforted. Number two, the Torah principles on dealing with chronic grief. And number three, etiquette when visiting the grieving. So let's take a step back for a moment and ask a basic question. And the basic question would be, is mourning an appropriate and ideal thing? Should people be mourning even the loss of a loved one? And the reason why I asked this question, because there were people, very smart people, philosophers, who believed that there's no reason to mourn. Grief is an absolute, unnecessary item. A fellow I'm sure you've heard of, a great philosopher, a Greek philosopher by the name of Socrates, right? Famed 5th century BC philosopher and a citizen of Athens, Greece, was one of the notable people who believed that he didn't say, he said that death was not a big deal and there's no reason to get upset about it and there's no reason, it's not worthy of mourning. Interesting thing, Socrates had an annoying habit of challenging the wisdom that was officially perceived at the time. And whatever wisdom was the conventional wisdom at the time, he always went out against it. And because of that, he was actually arrested by the Roman government. He was eventually put on trial and found guilty of corrupting the minds of the youth of Athens. And when, he was, and when he was put on trial, he was then going to be forced, and he was, he was to forced to drink a, a drink a cup of poison, which would then cause him to be killed. In fact, he had opportunities to escape, according to some, and he didn't want to escape because he said, I don't care about death. I'm not afraid of death. Death is nothing to be afraid of. And he said, any philosopher worth his paper shouldn't be afraid of, afraid of it either. 
In his prison, he went and visited his students. One of his very famous disciples were Plato. I'm sure you heard of him. And his, his, and his uh, one of his disciples at the time was Phaedo, who then related it to Plato, another disciple of Socrates, and the dialogue ensued, and this was what, what Plato recorded, the conversation that he had with Phaedo. And if you look in text number three, I'm not going to read it, but in text number three, um, Socrates talks about and instructs, and he sees, and he says how death is something which is nothing to be concerned about. And I'll just put up the main point on the screen here. He is not permitted to be his own benefactor, but must wait for the hand of another. He then continued to say, the words is, he is not permitted to be his own benefactor, but must wait for the hand of another. So what we see over here is, that in Socrates' estimation, a true philosopher is one who actually seeks death. That means because he believed that removes you from the shackles of the body, you are able to be free to think and explore and be who you are as you wish because there's no world of levitation. While death is the ultimate thinking, desire, according to Socrates, of the human being. What does Judaism say about that? What does Judaism believe in the concept of mourning? Does Judaism believe that we as Jewish people, when a person passes on, should the mourners be sad? Should they be grieving? Should they be mourning? We all know, any person knows that there's a concept of shiva, as we're going to get to in a moment, that Judaism is an old age tradition, that not only are we allowed to mourn, but in the words of Maimonides in text number four, we are biblically commanded to mourn the deaths of the next of kin. And here comes the question. Based on everything we spoke about in last week's in the past two weeks, how the soul is only transitioning from a physical world to a spiritual world, that nothing really changes to the soul. In fact, the soul is now leaving a world which is full of lies, a world which is full of dishonesty, a world which is full of uh, impurity. Why should you mourn? Shouldn't you be rejoicing? Now the soul is going to a pure, sacred, holy world. Why the need for mourning? Why does the Torah then command us to mourn? It would seem counterproductive. In fact, perhaps we should be celebrating because now the soul is liberated just the way Socrates looked at it. So let's look at a few texts about why we mourn. And then we can have a better understanding of what the Torah is objective is in mourning. Text number five. The first one is from Nachmanides. And Nachmanides says as follows. The Torah does not forbid us to weep in response to a death because it is the human nature to be moved by tears. When separating from loved ones and they're enjoying, and they're journeying away even when they're alive. Nachmanides looks at it in a very basic level. And says, listen here, even when a person's alive and a mother sees her children going away for a day, she's already crying. Oh, where are they going to be for lunch? How are they going to eat? And how they're worried about. So imagine when you're not going to see that person ever again in the physical life. That automatically awakens within the individual tears, crying. And the Torah cannot forbid us to do something which is the natural being. 
The Torah wasn't given to angels. The Torah was given to human beings. God doesn't ask us for something which is humanly impossible. And therefore, the Torah acknowledges reality. And reality is, hence, mourning. And therefore, the Torah allows it. That's one way of looking at it. That's Nachmanides. Maimonides takes it a step further. Maimonides says, text number 5b, mourners find comfort in crying and in arousing their sorrow until their bodies are too weak to handle the intensity of their internal turmoil, just as happy individuals find contentment in varying forms of lighthearted activities. You see the difference between Nachmanides and Maimonides? Nachmanides says, because it's part of the nature of the human being, God allows it. Maimonides doesn't just say it's part of our nature. Maimonides actually finds a benefit to crying, to mourning, and to grieving. Maimonides says the same way people who are excited and happy, they dance and they make lighthearted jokes, so to people that are sad, the way they are able to overcome their sadness is by grieving, by mourning, by crying, and this is actually a healing and a comfort that brings to the bereaved. But here's one more text that takes it even a step further. And this is from the Radvaz, Rabbi David ben Zimra, a noted halachicist in the 15th century. And he actually was originally from Spain, immigrated to Israel when the Jews were expelled. And he says as follows, text number 5C. One of this generation's greatest personalities failed to shed a single tear upon losing his son. Is this a praiseworthy reaction? He answers, such behavior is offensive and objectionable. It demonstrates heartlessness, distasteful character, and cruelty. This is the way of the philosophers who maintain that this world is without purpose. By contrast, we who have received the Torah are expected to believe that we, and to realize that this world is of great value for those who properly utilize our time here and behave appropriately. It is through our actions in this world that we merit the world to come. Now listen to this. Crying, mourning, and shedding tears over the passing of a relative, and especially for an honorable individual, is the way of the pious, the prophets, individuals renowned for good deeds. It is not for naught that our sages instruct us to observe three days of weeping, seven days of eulogies, 30 days restrictions on wearing new clothing and getting haircuts. If weeping were improper, the sages would not have instituted a three-day weeping period. In fact, the Torah emphasizes that our forefather Abraham came to eulogize Sarah and use the words and weep for her. And Jacob, King David, the countless individuals, similar caliber, acted likewise. So what do we see from here? We see that from the Torah's view, not only is it an acknowledgement of a reality that you can cry, not only is there psychological benefits, but he also goes a step further that there's a value of the physical life that we as people here, it shows us and it teaches us, it expresses a Jewish truth that he's telling us that a theological truth that we have a reason why we're here. God created the person for a reason and therefore, if we look at this to contrast Judaism's view versus Socrates' versus point of view, the Torah tells us that the world was created for a purpose. The human being came in this world for a purpose. 
And therefore, when the human being is taken away from this world, we then come to realize and acknowledge the purpose of why the person was put in this world. While from the philosopher's point of view, being that the person is not, being that this world is nothing, the person is nothing, and therefore, when the person leaves this world, it's nothing as well. That means the purpose of creation is this physical world. God's desire is that we serve him. And for that reason, it is a sad time that this person no longer can serve God. With this perspective, we now understand very clearly why it's actually a mitzvah. Not only a mitzvah, not only a natural thing in the human being, not only is it beneficial for the human being, but it, as we learned, it's an obligatory mitzvah to mourn the, the, when a person passes away, to, to mourn following the passing of a parent, sibling, child, or spouse. And as we're going to see, there are different levels of mourning in each one of them. But the four people, I'm sorry, the three, the, um, the, the four different types of relationships, whether it's a parent, a sibling, a child, or a spouse, all those is an obligatory uh, mitzvah for a person to mourn. Now, what does this mean to mourn? So as we explained, the Torah validates, not only validates, but commands us to mourn. So what is the process of mourning according to the Torah? So I'm just going to, you can see it in figure 3.2 on page 93. We're going to look at the different time period. And we're going to see how that time period, and we're going to get to it later, we'll actually see how this all applies and helps the mourners grieve their lost one. So this is just a quick overview of what the process of mourning works from a Jewish perspective and according to halacha. The first time period is right away from the passing until interment. This in Hebrew is called onen or aninut. And at that time, a person is, first of all, where you don't attempt to console the mourners. Number two, they're absolved from any commandments that require activity. For example, they don't have to say Shema, they don't have to put on tefillin. And the reason is because these things bring joy to a person. And we know that in this person, we want to allow the person to grieve and to be crying. So therefore, they're absolved from those commandments, as well as immediate family members tear part of the outer garment. We then move on to the next part, which is the th the the uh, the thirty day part. I don't know why it's skipped. One second, that's three days. It should be it skipped over here. Just one second. Going too quick. We then have the second one. The second part of it is <coughs> is the shiva which is the seven-day mourning period. The seven-day mourning period commences with once there's the interment, that's when the seven-day mourning period begins. And we're going to get to the shiva a little bit later, so we're not going to talk about the laws right now. The third part of the mourning period is the shloshim, the 30-day mourning period, which commencing with the interment. During those 30 days, we avoid putting on new clothing, no haircuts and no festive events in those 30 days. It's interesting to note that even a person who is mourning a spouse, their obligation of mourning ends at the 30 days. Because again, there's a different levels of relationship of mourning and grieving that has to be done. So therefore, the children go on for 12 months. A spouse or a sibling is only for 30 days. 
The next stage of mourning is the 12 months. During these 12 months of mourning is number one, this period applies to one's mourning of a parent only. Some shlosom restrictions continue like avoiding festive events and customarily keep a candle burning for the entire 12 months. That's the extended mourning period. And after that, every year on the yard site, which is the anniversary of the passing, Again, there is that time where there's the recitation, recitation of Kaddish, additional Torah study, and extra good deeds in the memory and the merit of that deceased. What we see over here is that these are halachic multi-phased levels of mourning. And as you notice, it started from an intense level of mourning from the time of passing, and it trickles down during the 12 months, and then once again every year on the anniversary of the person's passing. Up until the 1980s, psychological studies of grief and coping with loss were divided between two tracks, two different areas, which we would call track one and track two. Track one based on the function that after a person lost somebody in their life, how did they function? Did they go back to work? Were they talking to people? Did they move into society? Did they lock themselves up? Were they depressed? Were they what actually happened to them? What was their function? And therefore, is the grieving person managing what kind of relationships are they maintaining? What are their other interests? How did they, so to speak, move back into life from a function perspective? Another way of gauging was relationship. Based on the relationship with the deceased, their connection, were they always talking about it? Would they totally separate themselves? How did they look and view the disease. There was a doctor, a very famous uh, professor of clinical psychology, who was the director of the International Center for the Study of Loss, Bereavement, and Human Resilience. He was the chairman of postgraduate program in psychotherapy in the University of Haifa. His name was Dr. Shimshon Rubin from the University of Haifa. And he spent years studying these two tracks. And what he came up with was an unbelievable thing. Now, looking at these two tracks, they're really disjointed. They're really like, they don't complement each other. You can have one, but not the other. And they're really so, so to speak, they don't flow with one another. And what he did was he created a dual track, a two track model of bereavement. And uh, if you look in figure 3.3, you can look at it to see his whole um, analysis. But what I really want to mention is, and what we're going to look at, is the next thing which you'll see on figure 3.4, where in 2014, Dr. Ruben published a article where he observed both sides of the psychological model and he showed how the Torah's view of mourning and the Torah's view of how we go about the process of grieving helps alleviate and helps Liz, he froze again. You want to call him? I'm on it. Thank you. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I see you, but I can't hear you. You're frozen. Your your mouth is open. <laughs> 
Um, you had just clicked on the last thing regarding relationship, separation from the deceased. It was comparing the two. Just let him know that it, he was talking about the how all this Reuben stuff connected with Torah. <laughs> okay, he uh, hung up on me. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, he's You're muted, Rabbi. We can see you now, but you're muted. Oh no, now you're not muted. Naren, you want to tell him? He's muted. No, he's not. <laughs> You're funny. And you're back. We're back. Just uh, sorry about that. I don't know what's going on today, but because uh, the internet says that we're good, so I don't know why we are. We not... see in the PowerPoint. I know, I know. Just one second. Yeah, yeah, just one second. Okay. Yeah, you were up to telling us about what well, the last thing we heard is were you connecting this guy Ruben to the Torah, but we didn't okay, hear anything. That's what we're up to. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Baron. Okay, so here we are again. So this Dr. Simon Rubin was able to find and show how these two levels that he was able to create to um, the Jewish mourning process addresses both of these perspectives. And as we'll see, we'll go through figure 3.4. You will see how both of these, uh, the function and relationship are addressed by the Torah. So take, for example, what's the first stage of mourning? Is aninus, which means a minimal function that the person has because the passing just happened. He's in shock. They're not able to deal with it. And therefore, what do we expect of this person? Minimal function. He's not obligated to do any of the commandments. And therefore, at this time as well, what is the person all preoccupied about? Is their relationship with the person who passed on? So it's all about connectivity, relationship, and at the same time, we minimize function. Then we move on to the Shiva. In the Shiva, there are two parts of the Shiva. There's the first three days and the next, uh, next four days. But even so, what is the Shiva? There's a limited amount of duties that the person who is sitting Shiva is obligated in. For example, they shouldn't be working. They're not supposed to study certain parts of Torah. They're just sitting in a low chair. So we don't demand as much function. And despite that, we want them to receive visitors. So we minimize function, but we also bring in them to be able to acclimate that they should see people, people should comfort them. And at the same time, when people come and comfort them, they share their experiences of things that happened in the past of their previous um, relationships that deepens the connection with the, with the individual to know that they've never lost the connection with the person that passed on, as well as there are numerous rituals which are done during the Shiva to be able to merit some type of connection with the deceased in the next world, for example, the studying of Mishnais and so on. Then you go a step further, which is the Shloshim period. The Shloshim period is that you now remove the, the, those functions that they were not allowed to do are removed. 
The outside responsibilities are resumed with the exceptions with a few. So again, you're integrating them into the function mode. Less time is allocated focusing on the loss. And while you continue to engage in numerous activities, which do think about and are done in the merit of the person that is lost. Then you go on to the 12 months. The 12 months, you continue with that progress from function, keep on diminishing function of focusing on the loss, but function of mixing and integrating into the world. And same as above with the reduced emphasis of the individual, but more on the relationship. And then we talk about the yard side is a continued awareness of the loss, continue more normal function in the world. And at the same time, actions and prayers mark the loss, the space and the calendars provided to show this continuing relationship. So what we see over here is that this doctor was able to do was take these philosophical issues or psychological um, things that a person may occur to them at the time of passing and show through Judaism that the Jewish mourning of process helps us and addresses these two perspectives. An important element of all this, of the laws of mourning, and this is where it comes a little tough, is accepting the reality. Accepting the new painful reality that a person in their family, that their loved one has passed away. Now, what does this mean? We find in the Torah many instances and occurrences that until they were able to recognize and realize and come to grips in the situation and say, yes, this has happened, only then was the healing process able to start. Take, for example, when the brothers came to Yaakov and told Yaakov that Yosef was killed when he really wasn't, it says that Yaakov wasn't able to console himself. He wasn't able to mourn. But until they showed him that, look, your son has been captured or destroyed or devoured by this goat, only then did Jacob tear his clothing and it says that he mourned for his son. You can see it in text number six. The brothers slaughtered a goat and dipped Joseph's tunic into the blood. They sent the color tunic home and the couriers brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Please identify whether or not this is your son's tunic. Jacob recognized and exclaimed, it's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph had been torn into pieces. Jacob rent his garments, placed sackcloth on his loins, and mourned the loss of his son for many days. And there we ripped the clothes. There, we, there was the first time biblically we see about ripping the clothes. But why did he have to rip his clothes? Because tearing the clothes in public especially is the greatest expression of pain, of expressing one pain. Moreover, the act of tearing the garment usually counter-reacts the denial of the situation that just happened. The first thing that happens when a loved one passes away, what's the first words that a person say couldn't happen? Why did it happen? When the tearing of the clothing happens, there's an inescapable and it's a tangible reality that this is for real. Text number seven. Rabbi, Yehu, Rabbi Yaakov Chagi states that mourners are instructed to rend their garments as a method of distracting from and reducing their overwhelming grief. And he says, in my humble opinion, the opposite is true. 
Having to rend their garments brings mourners to tears and amplifies their pain. The goal is to actively encourage mourners to express their pain over the passing and to experience their tremendous loss. I know today that many funerals people go to, you'll see that they put a little ribbon that they button onto the side of it. That was just a funeral director's way of not having to deal with the people's clothing. But according to Jewish law, there's an actual act to tear the clothing because by tearing, now you don't have to take your fanciest suit, it can be the junkiest jacket that a person has, but the actual tearing of the clothing is what makes it a reality. That means the visceral act that a person takes a garment that they wear and tears it towards their heart is an expression of pain that number one you want should trigger the onset of the necessary mourning process. What happens is many times people feel like they have to be strong and show that they're not mourning or show that they're not crying or show that they don't have to, that it's not bothering them. While the contrary is true, while the contrary is what's necessary, Torah says, no, you have to cry. Right now, this is a time for you to mourn. When the person passes away, this is a time of mourning. Getting back to normal prematurely will affect your mourning process and will affect how you're going to relate to it later. And therefore, the Torah says, tear your clothing, make it tangible, realize what's happening so you can get on with your mourning process. Taking the time to mourn is crucial for the healing process. When something is fast forward, you miss out what's happening and therefore... The danger is that it may deteriorate and may go later on and say, why didn't you mourn? It may go into an isolation or depression or whatever because they did not have the proper time to mourn. And therefore you find some people say, oh, I'm not going to do a shiva. I'm not going to do this. I'm fine. I'm good. Torah says, no, you're obligated to mourn. Why does the Torah say you're obligated to mourn? Because you're mandated that these first three days, as the Jewish law says, those three days are for weeping. These three days, because when you provide milestones for individuals and you say three days for weeping, seven days for mourning, 30 days for extended mourning, what you're giving is benchmarks and, uh, and focusing and narrowing in what your purpose of what you're doing so that individual can grieve, can mourn, and eventually move on. So while mourning the loss of a loved one is natural and is a commandment, ultimately, the bottom line is that we can't stay there. Because as we mentioned, the bottom line is to move on. And therefore, as we find, as it says in the Talmud, the Talmud says, neither cry for the dead, nor bemoan him. What does it mean, neither cry for the dead, nor bemoan him? The prophet Jeremiah tells us, how are we expected to act I'm sorry, nor bemoaning more than what is prescribed. How are we expected to act? Three days of weeping, seven days for eulogies, 30 days for restrictions of new clothing and haircuts. Once these days have elapsed, God declares, you are not more compassionate than I. What we see from this is that the Torah is compassionate. The Torah is not only compassionate, but the Torah understands the psyche of the human being. God understands what there is, what it takes that a person needs time to heal in every different type of occurrence that happens to them in life, especially a tragic one as losing a loved one. And therefore the Torah gives us benchmarks. 
Don't run into it all at once. Life is not going to be back to normal. There's a progression. But once you moved on that progression, you got to move back into reality. Because God said, I understand. I'm compassionate. God's the ultimate compassion. And therefore, when the proper time comes, we have to move on. There is no question that every single person is differently. Some people may need more than three days. Some people may need more than seven days. Some people will think that the three days or the seven days is too much or too little. Or maybe they don't want that time. Others will feel ready. And for everyone, the pain of losing a loved one never disappears. Nevertheless, this principle remains the same. That the extended mourning period is not what God wants from us. Yes, it may be difficult. But what God is telling us is, I want you to take what you've learned. And in the words of King Solomon, he says, The living must take to heart. We can't just live in the past. We can't live and keep on looking in the rear of your mirror. We need to be able to move on and take what we've learned from our loved ones and move on with it. But the question is how? How do you move on? Easier said than done. And now we're going to look at what the Torah gives us, a guide to be able to move on. What does this mean? One of the things that a person says before departing a mourner's house during Shiva, he says, we say the following statement, text number 9a. May the omnipresent God console you along the with the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. He sees something very interesting about this prayer or about this consolation. First of all, why do we wish the person that God should comfort them? If you're going to pay a shivakal, why are you saying God should comfort you? You say, I'm comforting you amongst the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. Why God? Just an interesting tidbit here. The word for God over here is used as makom, place. If you, anybody know good math here? What's 26 square? <laughs> no. Uh, 186. Yeah, 10 times 10. Actually, not 26 squares. So if you take Hashem's name, the trigamet, where's the time to be able to pronounce that word? What's it called? Tetragamaton, right? Yud is 10. 10 square 10 is, 20, is uh, 10 times 10 plus 5 times 5. Plus six times six plus five times five is 186. So there you go. The gematria, the numeric value of the word makom, 186, comes to God's name. But that's just how we know that makom means God. But why are we saying that God comforts you? Why are we saying that God comforts us? And over here what we're saying in essence is that the only person that can really comfort somebody is God. We have no idea why people die when people are born, what happens and the only person that can really bring you comfort is God. Knowing that God is the one that is given and God is the one that is taken <laughs> is the only thing that can actually bring comfort to a person. And sometimes that comfort comes through the medium of time that allows the person to heal. But then there's something interesting that we continue. And we tell the person, may God comfort you amongst the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. Where do they come in here? Why are we telling the person amongst the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem? 
And the Rebbe explains as follows, text number 9b. In regard to Zion and Jerusalem, the Romans and before them the Babylonians were given dominion over only the wood and stone, silver and gold of the temple's physical manifestation, but not over its inner spiritual essence contained within the heart of each and every Jew. Over this, the nations have no dominion and it stands eternally. So too regarding the mourning of an individual, death dominates only the physical body and concerns the deceased person. The soul, however, is eternal and has merely ascended to the world of truth. Every physical matter, whether you like it or not, as wealthy as you are, as powerful as you may be, eventually ends. If it's physical, if it's materialistic, it's going to find its end. However, something spiritual is eternal. And therefore, in this case, what are we telling the person? When the Romans, the Greeks, whoever destroyed Jerusalem, what did they destroy? They only destroyed the physical building of stones and wood. But the spiritual blessing that was there forever is there. That's why even today, Temple Mount is a holy place, even though there's no holy temple on it. The same idea is also when a person passes on. The physical absence of the person is only their physical is missing, but their spiritual is immortal and will always stay there forever. That is the comfort that we give to a person who is sitting shiva. This is the way when we mention to them the mourners of Zion and Jerusalem is telling them what we are mourning is merely the physical destruction. We are mourning the very fact that yes, the body of that person we can no longer see. The physical beauty of that individual is no longer here to share with us. But as we mentioned in the previous two classes, their spiritual, their feelings, their emotional, their contributions to this world is still here and continues to be here. So while we, at one hand, are suffering and are mourning and are grieving the loss, we know their immortality as well. Here's a little... Um, Here's a little uh, meditation. Let's hope this works and we don't get disconnected again. Meditation about the concept of trying to merge the two, the physical with the spiritual. Today's reflection is going to involve an image which all of us probably have an immediate and strong reaction to. It is an icon for Jewish people all over the world and throughout the ages. An image that when we see it, we have a very strong and almost reflex response. I'm speaking of the image of the Western Wall, the only remaining vestige of the once glorious holy temple which stood in Jerusalem and was destroyed 2,000 years ago. We're going to use this image to help us in relating to our understanding of our relationship with those who have passed on. So imagine, if you will, in your mind's eye, the image of the temple, the glorious temple as it stood as it was built by Solomon, 
in its royal splendor. Something that was revered by peoples all over the world. And now, juxtapose that glorious image with the image of the Western Wall as it stands now and has stood for 2,000 years in its destroyed state. Go back and forth between these two images. The temple as it stood in its glory and the temple in ruins when we only have the Western Wall. The Western Wall is a symbol of destruction. The temple is no more. And yet, and yet, think about the hope, the strength, the inspiration, the spiritual and emotional energy that emanates from that image even when the temple is in its destroyed state. Now think about a loved one who has passed on. Think about them when they were here with us in the physical world. Think about the situation at present when their physical body is no more. Are they really gone? Have they really lost their influence and power in your life? Or are they like the Western Wall? The Western Wall is an image of destruction, and yet the Western Wall is a symbol of inspiration and hope, pride, powerful, powerful emotions. Think of this image. Think of the feelings that that it evokes in you. And now relate this as a symbol to those who are currently, physically, their, their vessel has been destroyed. But spiritually, their power is as great as ever. We'll take a moment now to reflect and to connect to this image and to relate it to our loved ones. take this even a deeper understanding now helps us better understand why the concept of rendering the garment is so important because the tearing of the garment also helps understand how this is only a physical loss but a continuation of the spiritual read text number 10 as we see this is from Rabbi Aaron Moss question and answer he says as follows Page 102, often within their pain, the mourners have an underlying belief that it's true that their loved one hasn't really gone. This this isn't just denial in a way that they are right. Death is not an absolute reality. 
Our souls existed before we were born, and they continue to exist after we die. The soul has passed on and is still here with us. We can't see them, but we sense they are there. We can't hear them, but we know they hear us. On the surface, we are apart. Beyond the surface, nothing can separate us. So we tear our garments. This has a dual symbolism. We are recognizing the loss that our hearts are torn, but ultimately the body is also a garment that the soul wears. Death is when we strip off one uniform and take off another. The garment may be torn, but the essence of the person is still intact. From our worldly perspective, death is indeed a tragedy, and the sorrow experienced by the mourners is real. But as they tear their garments, we hope that their pain, they can sense a glimmer of a deeper truth that should never die. When we internalize this concept, what we're getting is that death loses its all annihilating force, its absolute finality, and it has the power to comfort the individual that the soul never dies and the soul will be forever with them. And this helps the person return, the mourner, I should say, slowly return to his or her life. But one of the reasons, what happens? What causes people to be stuck? What causes people to say, you know what, I just can't move. Let's go back to that woman heaven. What, I'm more Stephanie, I'm sorry. What causes them to be stuck? What causes them not to move on and move back into life. So in an ideal situation, when a person finds strength, after they go through the process of mourning, they have that, so to speak, inner strength to move on with life and to go back and to regardless of any circumstance that they encounter. But how does the Torah help a person who is stuck? What is the Torah telling us when it teaches us about the laws of mourning to tell us how do we get and move on to the next day. So when you want to be able to unstuck yourself, you have to see why are you stuck? What's causing you to be? What's causing you not to move on? We have to analyze what's causing the person, the pain that's not allowing them to move to the next stage. And many times, you will say, what did you just say before? What causes the person not to move on? They're in pain. They can't let go. Why can't they let go? Why? What's bothering them? And they will have a lot of things that may be bothering them. But here are some of them. Injustice. It's not fear. Why did that person have to die so young? They will say they're guilty. They feel guilt. I could have spent more time. I should have spent more time. I wanted to spend more time. Depression, they fall into this absolute sadness that doesn't allow them to move on. Anger, why did God do this? Why did it have to happen? Or denial, where they say, you know what? Why did it never happen? Shouldn't that happen and so on? And these are common emotional reactions that happen which cause a person to get stuck. What we're going to talk about today is discuss two of them, which may encompass many others. And we're going to look at guilt and anger. Let's talk about anger. One of the most common uh, feelings experienced by people who are out of mourning in the past and the loved ones is they feel injustice. It's not fear. This shouldn't have happened. 
he was too young, she was too young, he was a great person. There's so many different feelings that they come about. But let's take, let's take two scenarios. You have a 90-year-old guy that dies peacefully in his sleep. That's scenario A. Take scenario B. 20-year-old kid passes away after a difficult battle with leukemia. How are your reactions going to be different? What are you going to say about the 90-year-old? Lived a wonderful life. So nice that he died peacefully. He's in a better place right now. There's no anger. But what about that 20-year-old that died after a battle of cancer? What do you say? But why so young? He had such a life ahead of him. There's a certain level of disgust and anger. In the first case, there we go. That's the anger, huh? Just one second. Oops. I'm sorry about this, but I have everything today is. Uh, there we go. In the first case, in scenario A, it's common to feel pain. Yes, there's pain. Yes, you feel a loss. He was a great grandfather. He's a beautiful person, but there's no anger. It leaves a void and everything else. But in scenario B, there's a certain kind type of injustice where you go, why? Why did it have to happen? Why did they have to die so young? Why did they deserve it? When a 90-year-old dies, you say it was a life, a full life, and everything else. What's the difference? In one case, your pain turns to anger. And in one case, your pain turns to calm. And we're going to look at a piece of the Talmud, a fascinating piece of the Talmud, about one of the greatest scholars that lived in the time of the destruction of the temple, Rabbi Yechonen who lost a child at a tragedy of losing a child. And he experienced the firsthand of the murder of millions of Jews. But all of a sudden, when he lost his own child, he was looking to be comforted. And every single one of his students came in to comfort him. And he wasn't finding any comfort. And let's see what comforted him and what did not. Text number 11. It's a little bit long, so bear with me. When the son of Rabbi Yechonim and Zaki passed away, his students arrived to console him. Rabbi Eliezer entered and sat before him and said, Master, he said, what would you like to share a thought? He said, speak. Rabbi Eliezer said, Adam had a son who died and he allowed himself to be consoled. And he continues and he says, I'm not going to read every line. Adam was again intimate with his wife, so you should also allow yourself to be consoled. Rabbi Yochanan retorted and he said, it's not that I'm grieving my own loss, that you've made me feel bad for Adam. Rabbi Yeshua said, and then I'm going to go to the bottom of the page. It says, Rabbi Yeshua said, Job had sons and daughters, and they all died in a single day. Yet he allowed himself to be consoled. And what did Rabbi Yochanan answer? And it's not enough that I am grieving my own loss. Make me feel pain of Job as well. Rabbi Yossi entered and said, Rabbi Yossi said, Aaron had lost two illustrious sons. And again, Rabbi Yochanan answered, it's not enough about my loss. You're making me feel bad, Aaron. Rabbi Shimon said, King David also had a son and loss. Rabbi Lazar ben Arach, and I'm going to go all the way to the end, Rabbi Lazar ben Arach, the fourth of the last paragraph, entered and said, Rabbi Yochanan saw him and he told his attendant, grab a set of clothing for me and prepare to follow me to the bait house. For Rabbi Lazar is a great person and I will not be able to hold out in the face of his comforting words. 
Rabbi Elazar entered, sat before Rabbi Yochanan and told him, let me tell you a parable. Your situation is similar to an individual to whom the king entrusted with an article of safekeeping. Each day, the man would weep and wail in tears. Woe is to me, when will I emerge in harm from the safekeeping role? You, master, also had a son. He was fluent in the Torah of the prophets, the scriptures, and he passed from this world without a sin. You should certainly accept the consolation, for you have returned your deposit in perfect condition. Rabbi Yochanan responded, Rabbi Elezer, my son, you have comforted me in the most humane fashion. What did Rabbi Elezer say different than all the other students? Why did he find comfort in Rabbi Elezer, but did not find comfort in anything of the other students said? Each one of them came and saying, Adam lost a child, David lost a child, Job lost a child, Anna lost a child. You're not the first one, you'll make it through. What was Rabbi Yochanan telling them? Rabbi Yochanan was being real with them. Rabbi Yochanan was telling them, I'm different. Don't tell me that just because that guy lost a child, so therefore I should be able to survive it. I'm different. I'm not Adam. I'm not Aaron. I'm not David. I'm not Jacob. I'm Rabbi Yochanan. And I'm troubled by tragedies. Just because they got over it, therefore means I have to get over it. Oh, very good. You mean the last one spoke about his child in particular? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Not only that, what was Rabbi Yochanan teaching them? Don't expect people to behave like other people. Each person has their own way of grieving. Each person has their own way of dealing with tragedies. Each person has their own way of celebrating. Not only that, they did, as, as Sherman said, they didn't offer comfort. What did they say? You know, that guy lost a child. So what does that have to do with me? They didn't address Rabbi Yochanan. They told him theories. You can't, huh? Gave him examples. Not only that, you can't tell somebody, be happy. You can't tell the heart commands. In fact, there's a whole discussion in the Talmud how it says, I'm going to command somebody. You have to like ice cream. And if I don't, you have to be happy. What was it the Rabbi Elazar's approach? Rabbi Elazar had a whole different approach. Rabbi Elazar's approach was that all of a sudden he made the message personal. How did he make the message personal? He acknowledged that number one, every single person is different. He acknowledged and he recognized the fact and he says, you know what? He says, let me tell you a parable. Let me tell you an example. Let me tell you about your situation. Even more so. Rabbi Lazar had two points he was switching. Number one, he told them everyone is different. Then he all gave him the path to comfort himself. And he said as follows. He gives the example that life is a deposit. What does it mean life's a deposit? Everything we have, including our talents and opportunities and the qualities and achievements that we have in life are not our own. And not only are not our own, we're not entitled to it. It is God gave it to us. We start with zero. And on whatever we are given, whether it's on day one or day 120, 
whether it's a healthy functioning body or limited with health and liabilities, are all a plus and a blessing. You are not entitled to come into this world and get a Lexus and a mansion. I'm sure you'd like it, but that's not your entitled. Everything you have is a gift. Everything's a plus. Anything after zero is a plus. And when we see our lives that they don't just belong to us, they belong to God. We have a different perspective on life. When I realize that everything I have is only a deposit, then when this, when it, when I'm on, it belongs to God, then I don't feel cheated or robbed when it goes away early. Why? Because it was never mine. I was just hoping it for safekeeping. Okay, you came to collect it. We think about it. Why do I get upset when somebody takes away something from me? Because it's mine. If it wasn't yours, then I asked you just to keep it. If I ask you, take an example. If I have a Rolls Royce and I ask you to park in your garage, you will not wait. You can't, you're going to be excited the day I come and take it out of your garage. It's going to torment you every single day that I have it there. Why? I'm worried about the responsibility. It's not mine. And not only that, the day I take it out, you'll be the happiest person. God gave us all a gift of life, a deposit. When we recognize that every moment that God gave it this deposit from God, our perspective changes. Then we recognize that everything we have and everything we accomplish in the purpose of life, we appreciate that our feelings of what they come from and why am I angry? And why do I feel, hey, it's not fear, injustice. Why did this person die young or whatever it may be? It only comes from because we feel we're entitled. I'm entitled until, to live until 120. And the very fact that it happened earlier, who gives God the right? But if I believe that everything is from God and life is only here as a deposit and God's taking the Rolls Royce, finally, we say, okay, God's taking what's his. But what's the second point? Which adds a bonus on this. He tells Rabbi Yechan, life's a deposit. God put us here in this world for a purpose and for a reason. To fulfill an objective. The moment that objective is filled, what else does he have to be here for? And therefore he turns to Rabbi Yechan and he says, life is a deposit. It was given to us for an exact amount of time, for an exact amount of purpose, for an exact amount of place. And once that purpose and place is filled and accomplished, it was done. Mission accomplished. So while maybe superficially seeing that life was cut short, where Abelazar was telling him, for this soul, it was a full life. It was a whole life. So to summarize what Rebbe Lazar was telling him in the most comforting way to Rabbi Yochan and what consoled him, he said, number one, life is a deposit. And therefore, whatever we get is our fear and just value. Life is not ours to be taken away from us or to be given to us. And number two, he says the terms of the deposit is dictated by God. So I'm giving you a deposit. You have to deal with it. You have to make sure you do your job with it. And once you do your job, term is up, time to give it back. These two ideas help us get over the frustration of anger and injustice caused by the passing of a loved one. Whether it's in the prime of life or an old age, 
whether a person passes at 90 years old or 20 years old, both of them live equally fulfilling lives. And that's why God decided that their time has come, which we discussed many times, which is the dichotomy, which we're discussing today, is that for the soul, it's a life-fulfilled mission. For the mourners, it's a reality that they have to contend with, that that life is not here any longer. Because you're not, because you're thinking you're entitled that this guy should have been here longer. But if you believe that life is a deposit that God gave but it to you just for you know, yes, but be, the reason why you feel that is you believe that he should really be here longer. But if you know that life is only a deposit, that means that that Rolls Royce was only meant to be parked in your garage for 10 days. You're not going to feel sad that it's not here after 10 days because it was only built supposed to be there for 10 days. You may feel sad. You're supposed to feel sad. You feel, if you still feel anxious, then we must be coming from someplace else because you have that sense of entitlement. Once we remove that sense of entitlement, the anger goes away with it. Yeah, you're saying that you shouldn't be here. I didn't say you should be sad. You shouldn't feel entitled. You shouldn't feel that I deserve to have something more than I didn't. It's like when I walk into a, when a guy walks in to get paid and he says, I deserve to be paid $100,000. And then he only gets $50,000. He feels sad. Why? Because he feels he should have got paid 100000 Who said he should have got paid 100000 You decided that. So you created that same idea here. Why do you think that that kid should have lived until hundred? Because that's what you decided. But you're not in charge. God gave him and gave him, and God took him. And God wanted that he should be on this world for only 20 years. That's what God's decision when he put him on this world to begin with. And that 20 years of his life was meant to be his fulfilled life. So you're getting angry because you decided you wanted him to be there longer. You don't make that decision. And even every minute that he was here was a plus. Imagine you go into a job and you weren't expecting to make $10 and you walk out with $1,000. Every minute there's a plus. The same thing is also this person, every single minute was a plus. Another common experience which sometimes causes the anger and they overlap and that's why we're discussing them both together is an experience of guilt. And this many times I've seen holds a person back from moving on in life. And one of the things of guilt is one form of guilt, expresses itself in a way of saying, if I only would have known that they would have died younger, I would have been nicer to her. If I would have known that they're dying so quick, I would have said nice things. If I would have been better, I wouldn't have said that hurtful remark. I want to apologize. I never had a chance to and things like that. Or I should have called more. I should have visited more or anything of that nature. And that is a very common experience, even especially by children and parents who maybe didn't have the best relationship or by siblings where all of a sudden all the things that they are all the they have a certain guilty conscience that that person died all of a sudden and therefore they never had a chance to make up with them and if we think about everything we learned until now about the concept that death doesn't stop the relationship that you have with your loved one automatically we see that this is not even a reason to be guilty because as we mentioned, death doesn't terminate the relationship. On the contrary, like we learned last week, death enhances the relationship. Death makes the relationship even stronger 
and unlimited and infinite more than before. And if a person has any guilt and feels that they didn't properly uh, respect that person's wishes or didn't properly treat that person well, they now have an opportunity by saying Kaddish and studying Mishnayis and giving charity in memory of the person that has passed to mend the relationship and to be able to continue that relationship even better and enhance it even more than before. And many times, as we're going to talk about it in a different class as well, of how we see that people came back later in the dream and told them how their relationship has been enhanced post-mortem, so to speak. Rabbi Aaron of Karlin actually uses this terminology and he says, listen to this, an interesting analogy. He says that when a person, when children say Kaddish for their parents, listen to this, when children say Kaddish for their parents, it's like sending them regards. When they learn a chapter of Mishnah on their behalf, it's like sending them a letter. And when they fulfill a mitzvah, today we'll say an email, and they fulfill a mitzvah and good deeds for the benefit of their soul, it's like sending them an Amazon package. Okay? So there you go. It's doing a mitzvah for a person that has passed on in the world above, it's like sending them a package. Saying Kaddish is like saying hello. So if you feel or if somebody feels that they cannot give them the physical gifts and therefore they have that level of guilt, on the contrary, they should realize that they have the opportunities to give that spiritual gift greater. And I'm sure that spiritual gift has a greater impact and create and stimulate more joy than the person would have in the physical world. Knowing that we can stay in this relationship knowing that we can have the relationship with the person who has passed on. And you can continue to know, to feel, to love and appreciate and, and care for that person it creates a lot of room to get rid of that effort, that guilt, con guilty conscience that the person may have. And by internalizing this concept and positively channeling this guilt into a positive action, this will not only be benefits for the deceased, but as a benefit for the mourners and the people and the people around the mourners and for the family as well. We're going to conclude today with a, just a few points about the concept of Shiva we started before, about the Shiva protocols. Just before that, we have a little video. When a loved one passes away, Jewish law calls upon the immediate family to experience the rite of Shiva. Approximately seven days are spent in mourning and receiving comfort from visitors. A doctor, a rabbi, and an acclaimed lecturer offer personal reflections on the rite of Shiva. When someone dies, the relationship with the deceased doesn't end. The relationship with the person who died continues. It just changes from a face-to-face -face interpersonal relationship to a relationship of memories to a relationship of legacies. By engaging the mourners in this process, you're helping them make that shift. The purpose of Shiva is meant for the mourner to be able to take that time aside from the affairs of life and affairs of the world to contemplate, to introspect, 
and to share with others the life they had, with the person they loved. People come to visit and console and try to bring comfort to the mourner. The structure of it and the formality of it, it gives a sense of relief. You know, when, when you're grieving, it's very all over the place, very hard to contain. And the structure of the Shiva brings a relief and a sense of conformity, which is quite redeeming. If you want to comfort help, or help comfort the griever, what you're in essence doing by taking an interest in the person who's died is helping that person preserve his life. I remember hearing people say things to me that was almost like they said it and the words stopped right here. But days and weeks and months later, they slowly made their way in. The point of the Shiva is not to come up with anything brilliantly comforting to say, because there really isn't anything to say. Rather, it's just simply to be there. One person who lost a toddler under very, very tragic circumstances told me what was the most comforting visit all week. And I'll say it the way he said it. He said an older gentleman with a lot of life experience came in. He said he sat in front of him and he asked to see a picture of his daughter. He gave him the picture. He looked at the picture. He cried for 10 minutes straight. He gave the picture back. He said the traditional verse that you say as you leave, and that was it. And he said that was, without a doubt, the most comforting visit. But in retrospect, I have to say that that week of the passage between one reality and the next reality, somehow I have to believe in his infinite wisdom, God saw to it that this passage not be, not be taken alone, even while feeling lonely. Take on a mitzvah. Do something, and it can be tiny, but I'm going to do it in memory of this person, and especially if it fits with that person. That's comforting. Now the world's a slightly better place uh, because of that person. Here's just a little bit of uh, <clears throat> basic Shiva protocol. You see it in figure 3.5. There we go. So here's some laws and traditions that we have during the Shiva. Number one, mirrors and pictures in the Shiva house are to remain covered. Number two, and this is uh, to remain the this is for the mourners that are supposed to remain in the house during mourning. They sit on those stools, no leather footwear, avoid listening to music, no shaving or haircut. They abstain from work. They avoid Torah study, restrictions on bathing and laundry, prayer services are in the home. And visiting and visit the mourners, that's for other people that come by and visit the mourners. Then there are, of course, as you can see, that many of these things um, have more 
um, parts to it and more restrictions or maybe more exceptions that have to do with it. But this is the mitzvah to visit the mourners and comfort a person while they are sitting shit, as we mentioned before, this special saying that is said to a person who is sitting shiva as well. The mitzvah of consoling the mourning, as Maimonides tells us in text number 13, the, aid, the sages obligated us to visit the sick and console the mourners. These are deeds of kindness that one carries out in a person that have no limit. Although these are rabbinic ordinances, they fall under the purview of the biblical commandment, love your fellow as yourself. This is one of the deeds that there is no limit. Maimonides talks about this and saying, that you should do it. So therefore, if you're ever in doubt, should I call? Shouldn't I call? Make the call. There's no such thing saying better and un- there's no such thing as saying, oh, maybe they don't want to see me. Better an unwanted visit than an unexplained absence. And therefore, remember that when you are visiting that person for a shiva call, remember this is a personal time. Some people will weep. Some people will be more blunt. Some people will be more you know, less grieving, more grieving, but this is a different time where people's moods and changes are a different way and every person has their way of grieving. But the question is, how do we provide comfort? What do we do to providing comfort as we go and visit? What's the purpose of the visit? And what's the purpose of paying the shivakul? And the first purpose and the primary purpose of being by the shivakul is actually not even to say anything. It's just to be there for the person. And that's what the per- that's the reason for the Shivakor. In fact, if you look in text number 14, an interesting quote from Talmud, the reward for visiting the home of mourning is for the silence. The first principle of being of going to somebody's home to pay a Shivakor is just to be there. Don't say anything. You don't have to say anything. Sometimes they have these people that walk in and all of a sudden start making the jokes and they feel that they have to change the mood in the house. No, it's not what you're there for. In fact, according to Jewish laws, we're going to see you're not even allowed to speak until the mourner speaks. Because what you're there for is only to comfort the person who is grieving. And that's the main reward of just being there, the comfort for the person. As you see in text number 15, the comforters may not say anything until the mourner opens the conversation. What this teaching is us, that we have to see that every single person mourns differently and only until the person actually opens up to say something, some people will want to joke. Some people will want to be a little more lightheartedness. And therefore, don't attempt to change the mood unless you, so to speak, are requested to. Don't say, yeah, ask anything intrusive. Um, one of the things over here, you know, there's always these people who are going to come in and say, start philosophizing and saying what's happening to the soul and this and that and the other. Just listen. Just be there for the person and never try to generalize, never try to put things into a box or try to change scenarios or do things differently from what... Um, you feel that the people aren't needed at the time. There's certain no-no phrases, as they say, that you shouldn't say. You're asking, like, uh, don't ask were you there when he died? Did she die from this cancer? Did she die from the cancer or the chemo? Or did you know in advance? Or was it sudden? Did he have life insurance? Did he leave a big life insurance? You know, these type of questions are not type of questions that you should be asking by by the shiva call or ask if they mentioned you in the will or not. Uh, there's enough idiots that say it anyway, but the, yeah, how big was the will? Were you part of the will? Are you fighting with your siblings? You know, don't try to. And the worst is sometimes when a person comes along, and I've seen this, especially when people lose a child, or God forbid, is when they say, oh, yeah, don't worry. Or a person loses their parents. Don't worry. I also lost the parent. You know, don't try to belittle it because you say you also had that as well. 
And what Shiva is there for, Shiva is there, as we mentioned, and here don't philosophize, what you should do. And here are some things you should be doing by the Shiva. You can talk about the legacy of the person, how that person impacted your life. Talk about how, what a gift, what a gift that person was to the person's life, what you saw. And discussing things, how to move the person from, so to speak, sadness, move them to a level of mourning that they can be, let, whether from a passive depression to an active mourning, and let them understand and be beneficial of you can see how that person made impacts on people's lives and people around you, prepare, and say things that you may do. What mishnayas you're going to learn? What mitzvah you're going to do? What kind of good deed can you do? And because you remember them in such and such a way, as we see in text number 16, the final word regarding a person is that people proclaim his deeds. Common thing, so-and-so is a bright, so-and-so was God-fearing when a person departs of this world. God says to the ministering angels, see what people are saying about him. If they are saying that a been upright and God-fearing, his soul immediately ascends to paradise. So we see over here is actually an interesting thing. It's not just good enough. You know, when we talk about going into a person's home and talking about the person that passed on, say, oh, he was a great guy. And you say, well, is that, am I lying? Am I saying the truth? Are you saying it only because the person passed on? We see over here from this Talmud that the Talmud of the Medrash says that at the end of the day, God wants to hear what people are talking about, this individual. So we should also endeavor to talk about that person saying nice things about them benefits the soul because God is listening to what we're saying. And that's why you'll find, and the Rebbe actually spoke about this during the Shiva of the previous Rebbe, that the Rebbe said that during the Shiva, the time is to say stories about this individual. Because when you talk about a story about the person, A, it brings comfort to the mourners. B, it also talks about the person's attributes and how great they are in a real life situation, not making a mockery of it and saying, you know, like once there was a guy by a eulogy and he looked for somebody to say something nice about the person by the eulogy. And there was nobody there. So finally, one old man from the back goes, yeah, his brother was wise. <laughs> but the, the, so the, the concept of a eulogy of looking for things to say about a person, that's not the point. There's always, we can find things to put a positive light onto it and always how to shed things in a positive way. And there were many times, and I can tell you, unfortunately, I have done many uh, funerals for people that I didn't know. And I once did a funeral for somebody, I think the family was, um, let's say they weren't getting along that well by the funeral. And we had to find a method to be able to bring them together. And putting things, even in a lightheaded way, but putting a positive twist in it, gets the entire family to look at this person as a positive person, to look at themselves and say, what can I do to be positive in honor and to honor this person? So once again, what we see over here is, and what we can finish off with this class is, number one is that our actions in this world continue to influence the journey of the soul into the next world. And what we do here in this world, whether it's the Kaddish, the studying of a Mishnah or a Mitzvah, has a direct impact into the person of this world and eventually into the world next. With that, next week, we're going to continue to this excuse me, to discuss and move on to the topic that many people find fascinating. What does Judaism say about heaven and hell? Or which one are you going to be in? Okay. <laughs> Hopefully the computer won't give us any hell and we'll be able to figure it out. So next week, same time, same place. And hopefully we'll, with less issues and hiccups on the computer. Anybody have any questions? Thank you, Rabbi. <laughs>
Any questions? <laughs> I don't see any questions here, so I'm just going to. Lesson three. Are we good? I'll think of some questions for through the week. Sorry? I'll think of some questions through the week. <laughs> okay. Well, have a good week. We'll see you next, next, next week, same time, same place. Okay. Those Thank that didn't get the book, please contact me so you can come get your book or figure out a way how we can get it. Have a good week. Good week. I hear it. Stop sharing this. Okay, sorry everybody.